Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for queuing us up. This is episode number eight of The Next Track. Our main topic today is going to be about audiobooks. In fact, you may be surprised to learn that spoken word recordings uh, spearheaded many audio innovations. We'll get to that in a couple of moments. But right now, Kirk, you wanted to mention some listener email. Yeah, we got a, a, a few emails about our show on genres. And it's interesting because, uh, Doug, you and I were talking about the way we use genres and maybe they're not necessary. Um, but I got a, an interesting email from someone named Sky, who was a DJ, and he pointed out that he uses genres in order to classify his music. Um, he says he tags with up to three primary classifiers. The first one's the rhythm. So he, he says broken beat or 4-4 dance beat, or if there's none, it could be ambient or acoustic. The second is the overwhelming feeling, ambient, funk, techno, tribal, acoustic. And the third can be a secondary feeling with similar descriptors. He uses the comments tag to help define the set placement of songs by energy level, opening, warming, grooving, chilling, closing. And he uses the rating feature um, for energy. So one star is ambient music and five star is high energy intense music. You know, I'm not I'm not surprised to hear that. DJs have a whole other thing going <laughs> when it comes to uh, categorizing. That, that arrangement is probably fairly typical of the sort of taxonomy that most DJs would use, although there's, there's no standard. Um, but you can see that a DJ would need to be able to select tracks based on more than just musical style, things like tempo and intensity and groove and mood. And it depends on the way each DJ envisions the music as well, because they're all going to have their own approach to it. One may want the rhythm first. One may want the mood first. It's a show. I mean, when they do a show, it's if they're doing it live, they yep. want to be able to, you know, there's a feel that goes on. It's just like when I was doing free format radio, it's like, well, what song should come next? I mean, that's essentially what they're doing. What to, What's the next 15 minutes going to sound like? And we got another email from Kirk. Seriously, it's not me. This is another Kirk. And he says, being of scientific training, I think genre ought to be roughly analogous to genus in biological taxonomy. This implies that there should be labels more general than genre and also labels more specific like style and substyle. It's true that if you wanted to really define music, and I would see that from a musicological point of view, you might want to do this, you would want to come up with that sort of system. What would the genus be? Western classical music, for instance. And then the style would be, would it be a form like a symphony versus a sonata? Would it be an instrumentation? There are different ways you could do it. And my guess is that in musicology, there probably is a system like that that's not sort of written in stone, but that people do tend to use. Well, and, and both of these emails point out that uh, a simple genre name is, is just not enough for classifying music in a lot of um, specific situations. If you're a maven, there are other considerations than just whether or not a, uh, a Jimi Hendrix song is rock or blues. There are strata of style and era and instrumentation and any number of other qualities. So not surprising that there are a number of possible uh, systems. Doug, you get some extra points this week for using the words maven and strata <laughs> in the same sentence. <laughs> the tagline for this podcast is the way people listen to music today. And we were discussing a number of topics and we realized that people listen to a lot more than just music. Um, on their portable devices, on their computers, etc. I, in particular, am a big fan of audiobooks or 
more correctly spoken word recordings because a lot of what I listen to isn't books. It's um, Shakespeare plays, other theater. Um, it's poetry. People talking. Yes, spoken word, people talking. And, and people talking can be a single person reading a book, reading a poem, or it can be a full cast doing a Shakespeare play. Be a comedy album. It could be a comedy album, sure. Speeches, lectures, uh, radio broadcasts. It's interesting that if you look at the history of recordings, audio recordings, you actually look at the history of spoken word. Thomas Edison, um, when he first recorded something on a wax cylinder, uh, he said the poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Here is a portion of that Edison recording. So the first recordings were initially made for speech. They weren't made for music. Yeah, his original intention, I think, was not to um, come up with a device that recorded music, but it was a way to record messages that could be used in various ways, either by sending a cylinder to somebody, or I think one of the plans he had was to use it in some kind of telephone automation system. Like a Victorian call center. Yeah, like a Victorian call center. Now, I, I don't know how that ever worked out. Um, let me play another part of the same Edison recording. This is a cornet solo. Uh, which sounds pretty awful, and it illustrates why early recording techniques uh, weren't so great for music. I mean, this isn't just lo-fi, it's hardly any fi. Yeah, and so music started being recorded in the late 19th, earliest 20th century, and spoken word was always something important. In 1931, the American Foundation for the Blind set up a program that they called the Talking Books Program, which would allow people to who, who couldn't read to listen to books. And this, of course, is the very beginning of audiobooks. Now, these were done on LPs, and you'd have stacks of LPs to listen to a book. Probably they didn't do very many long books. They didn't do War and Peace and things like that. No, I think at 78, you only get about four or five minutes on a side, right? Right. And then, of course, around 1950, after LPs became common, then you could put a lot more content onto a record. In 1952, Cadman Records was formed, and one of their approaches to spoken word was mostly poetry and recitals and theater. I don't think they did too many actual books. Maybe they did some short stories, but there are... A, a huge number of great poetry recordings from the middle of the 20th century onward. Mid-20th century is also a point where recording equipment actually became easier to carry around, became much more portable. So you had uh, field recordists uh, starting to collect uh, oral history and cultural history uh, by recording it, by going from place to place around the country. Yeah, I have some links in the show notes. There is a recording that might be of Walt Whitman reading the first four lines of his poem, America. No one is 100% sure. Apparently, it's a recording from 1890. And here is a portion of that. America, center of equal daughters, equal sons, all, all alike and dear, grow and Young or old. Um, I've got a link to that. And then James Joyce reading some short passages from Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. And that was in the 30s. When I heard James Joyce read from Finnegan's Wake, that unlocked Finnegan's Wake for me. Well, you know, don't you, Kenneth, or haven't I told you, every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing. My branches lofty are taking root, and my cold chair's gone ashly. Feel old. 
what age is that? It soon is late. Tis endless now since I arrived one last for Waterhouse's clock. And J.R.R. Tolkien, reading from Lord of the Rings. This is stuff from the 50s. He had read a number of different excerpts from Lord of the Rings. Were there any elephants, asked Sam, forgetting his fear and his eagerness for news of strange places? No, no elephants. What are elephants, said Gollum. Stam stood up, putting his hands behind his back, as he always did when speaking poetry, and began. Grey as a mouse, Big as a house, nose like a snake, I make the earth shake as I tramp through the grass. So the real rise of the audiobook started in the 1970s with the advent of the cassette. Now, I've often heard an anecdote about what made audiobooks popular, and I couldn't find any evidence online to support this, but I've heard several times that the popularity of audiobooks arose because of long-haul truckers who needed something to listen to when they were on the road. Really? Well, I suppose, I mean, it it sort of shatters the stereotype of the uh, truck driver as the convoying, CBing, late-night driving, overnight radio listening. Um, they might have listened to that, but of course, if you're driving all day, you're going to be in and out of range of stations, and in particular, if you're not in your big cities, you've got low-powered stations, you maybe can pick up a station for an hour. Yeah, long commute. Why not an audiobook? So with cassettes, you started seeing um, audiobooks. I remember seeing them in libraries in the late 70s and the early 1980s. Yeah, they were like uh, coffee table book-sized plastiform booklets. Yeah, and they would open like sort of album pages and you would have, you know, 20 or 30 cassettes. And I guess what were we getting about an hour and a half on a cassette with decent quality back then? Yeah. Um, so you could get a pretty long book relatively easily. When you think about it, that's more than a CD. Even if CDs are smaller, um, you get books today that are 15 or 20 CDs, and, and that would have been, say, a dozen cassettes, which isn't really that much. And, you know, you, you think back, and it's like, oh, a dozen objects to keep track of. And remember to rewind. What was the saying? Be kind, rewind. Yeah. One company actually came up with an interesting idea using stereo on cassette tapes. They recorded one bit on the right channel and the next bit on the left channel. So if you had a balance control on your stereo, you could listen to the first part of it and then you'd flip the tape over and more of the first part, flip it again. I'd heard and that too and I wondered, part. did they have a special player for that or did you really have to work with the balance control? I remember in the 1990s, um, a company came out with a bunch of CD recordings in mono that worked with the same system that were all on one channel and it wasn't a special player. They just explained that, you know, for this, you, you put the right channel and then when it's finished, you put the left, the left channel. And I remember it was the first time I saw a very inexpensive set of Wagner's operas that, you know, are interminable. And if you, they were, these were recordings from the fifties, so they were in mono. And if you could only, if you could put twice as much on a CD, then you're getting roughly two and a half hours on a single CD. But they were in mono. But they were in mono because they were old recordings. Oh, I see. Okay, so it wouldn't you wouldn't expect them. They to were be... recordings from the fifties that were made in mono. I see. So it wasn't you weren't getting any worse quality than what you would have if it was a normal CD. I see. So we had cassettes for a long time, and then along came nineteen ninety seven, and we mentioned this in was it our very first episode when we were talking about the history of MP three players, um, the first mass market MP three player was released by Audible. It was called the Audible Player. It held about two hours of audio, and I think it was eight kilobits per second. The, the quality was relatively low. 
um, it was a small device. It was smaller than a pack of cards, maybe half the size of a pack of cards. Um, I did have one for a while back then. I Audible had sent one to me at some point. What did you do? Like you hooked it up to the computer and, and, and sideloaded audio that way? Yeah. Yeah, so it had a, a USB connector. It was probably a mini USB. And I don't remember exactly how it verified um, DRM because Audible's files are all protected. But there was some way that maybe it had its own app that would load the files onto the player. Yeah, that would make sense. Because these were DRM protected files. And it was very small. It was very portable. It was like... I don't know, half an iPhone in size. It was relatively thin, and you'd stick a headphone or ear earbuds in it. And, well, this is when audiobooks really took off, when digital files were available. You no longer had to carry a big Walkman or a, a CD player. You no longer had to have a stack of discs or cassettes. You could have a single file. Well, and, single, single to a handful. Yeah, and again, the bit rate for the early audiobooks was relatively low. Um, so even on a dial-up connection, you could get these files pretty quickly. I, I did some quick calculating. If you have 12 cassettes that are 18 hours, then a file at 8 kilobytes per second would be about, well, in the neighborhood of like 64 megabytes. Yeah, so it's small. Small. So Audible's been around for nearly 20 years now. They were bought out by Amazon a few years ago, and they provide content on the iTunes store. They're pretty much the only player as far as digital audiobooks is concerned. There are some other sites where you can buy audiobooks. Um, you got to be really careful because some of them are just pirated sites and they'll charge you five bucks for a book and you download a bunch of MP3 files that someone ripped from a CD. Right. Um, you don't want to give your credit card number to companies like that. Well, there are also plenty of free sites. For instance, there was a volunteer. There's a volunteer movement. I forgot what it's called. LibriVox. Oh yes, LibriVox, where volunteers actually just read books and make them available for for downloading for free. It's usually public domain stuff, and there's a lot of that. This is the Gutenberg project too, which I think has. Does they have an audio um, component? No, I believe LibriVox is sort of the equivalent of Gutenberg, and they okay. use a lot of Gutenberg texts. I see. Um, LibriVox, yes, it's a free, uh, technically it's crowdsourced, right? Because right. it's anyone can say, I want to read this book and record it. And you sort of stake out your claim. You go onto their forums, you say, I want to do this. Is anyone else planning to? And you record your book, and they give you all sorts of tips. Some of these books are very poorly recorded, but some of them are surprisingly well recorded for what they are. Well, you know, because it's all volunteer and it's not for profit, you're going to find a lot of obscure uh, pieces of literature that are going to be recorded. Well, of course, this is only public domain stuff. Right. Audiobooks now have become a, a quite a large market. Um, I believe Audible has a couple hundred thousand titles currently, which is when you think about it, a couple hundred thousand books have been recorded. In English. Right, not even counting other languages. I mean, that's a huge amount of audio recording. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've been an audiobook listener since it goes back to buying stuff on cassette, but not always audiobooks. I remember buying records of Gene Shepard, um, who was a, a radio personality in New York and had this sort of radio show where he would tell stories. People may know him as the narrator and author of the stories upon which the movie A Christmas Story is based. Yeah. Um, I remember buying Monty Python records back in the 70s as well, mid-70s. I remember one Monty Python record that had two 
sets of grooves on one side. So it was actually a three-sided record. Depending on where you put the needle down, you would get the first half or the second half of it. Right. So similar to those two-track um, cassette tapes we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, audiobooks raise a number of questions as to how you listen to them, how you organize them. Now, if you buy audiobooks by download, so you've got the option of, say, Audible um, or the iTunes store, you get you can choose bit rates within limits. I think there are only two choices now, um, 32 and 64K stereo. 32 is in mono and 64K is in stereo. Um, this is what's available from the Audible website. On the iTunes store, it's all 32K mono. Why does, why does Audible uh, offer 64K stereo when mono gets the job done? Well, so the 32K is MP3 files. The 64K is AAC using, what is it, H-E-A-A-C? Yeah, probably. What's the H-E stand for? High efficiency. High efficiency AAC, which offers better quality for um, voice and low bit rates. Right. So, But that's the stuff at 64 using That's H -E? the stuff at 64. Oh. I thought you could go lower with H-E, but okay. You probably can, but I think what they wanted to do was offer something that was better than the 32 so it had to be bigger in file size. I see, right. And, and the stereo files do sound good. Um, I do have a number of recordings of Shakespeare plays. Um, if I don't know how many times I've mentioned Shakespeare on this show, but if you've read anything I write or visited my website, you'll know I'm a Shakespeare buff. There is a certain need for stereo in a full cast recording that you don't need when it's just a narrator reading a single book. Um, so it does make a difference for something like a Shakespeare play or any sort of theater. Is that to detect like entrances and exits? Or? No, no. It's so you have one character on one side and one on another and maybe one in the middle. So when you've got multiple characters, you can position them. I see. Okay. You can get a mental idea of where they are in the space. And it's easier to follow when, I don't know, if you were to take this podcast right now and put my channel on the right and then yours on the left for a minute, um, people would be able to follow us differently. Mm -hmm. But the podcast is released in mono, so I can't. That's do that. right. Well, we could release it in stereo, but we don't. Maybe we need to make an enhanced version in stereo. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. It just means more work for our editor. Yes, we don't want our editor to do any more work. So with with audiobooks that you get from Audible or the iTunes Store, you download them. They come down as audiobooks. You sync them to your device. You listen to them on your computer, you stream them to an Apple TV or to any AirPlay device, or, well, if you let's say if you've got an Android phone, you could stream it to a Bluetooth speaker. Yeah. Now, another option is to get audio books on CD and to rip them yourself. And so here's where it's useful to think of a few um, settings before you rip. If, if you go into the iTunes settings, or if using another media player um, or a, another tool to rip your CDs, the settings are the same, think about that you probably don't need more than 32K. Mono is fine if it's a single voice, though if it's a full cast recording, you'll probably want more. Depending on the quality you want, if there's... So I, I have a lot of Shakespeare recordings and you've got music and you've got voice. So I just rip them at 256 because I just don't want to waste any time worrying about it. Well, is space not a consideration for you? No. Space isn't a consideration. Not really. If space is a consideration, if you have a lot of audiobooks and you want to squeeze as many as possible on your device... Um, then by all means, rip them in mono at 32K. Uh, here's the shameless self-promotion portion of the program. Uh, I develop an app called Join Together, which creates a single file from the files of 
tracks dragged in from iTunes. I originally wrote it so I could join albums together, like uh, the individual tracks from Dark Side of the Moon or the individual movements uh, of a classical work that had been split up. Uh, it turns out that Join Together got popular with audiobook listeners because it enabled them to rip and then join the files of a multi-CD audiobook into, well, ultimately longer files time-wise, but ultimately a smaller number of manageable files. Yeah, so I, I have a number of audiobook recordings, uh, and I'll mention Shakespeare again, I'm going to mention it later, that when, when I ripped the CDs, the metadata was correct and each track was a scene, an act and a scene number. And it's useful to maintain that as it is. But I have some others where GraceNote has no data at all. So I just joined all the tracks on each CD. And so for, for uh, most Shakespeare plays are about three hours. So I've got three CDs and three tracks. And that makes a lot more sense to me than having one long file with all three hours. I don't need to join it together. You know, sometimes audiobooks come uh, with tracks that aren't necessarily delineated by chapter, but by uh, an arbitrary time length, say 10 minutes, so that every 10 minutes there's a new track. And a lot of users of Join Together will create a, a single long file from all of those unusually timed tracks. Yeah. However, I don't really see much point in making one very long, let's say, 20-hour uh, file, single file. It's just too big of a file to manage. Well, I can understand people who want single files because it's easier to organize them, but that's only really a problem if you're manually moving your files around. Um, again, in iTunes, it doesn't make that much of a difference whether it's one or a hundred. Um, so here, here's something that I do, and here's a tip for listening to audiobooks. If you're ripping your own audiobooks and you've got multiple files. So the first thing is after you've ripped all the files, select them, press Command-I, or if you're on Windows, Control-I, um, click the Options tab and check Remember Playback Position and skip when shuffling. Uh, the Remember Playback Position setting means that when you stop listening and go to listen to something else, when you come back to that audiobook, iTunes will pick up at the same spot, so you don't have to scroll ahead and find where you stopped. Right, set a bookmark, bookmarking. It used to be called bookmarking, yeah. Is the file still an M4B file? Well, B the, for bookmark? Uh, B for book. Um, the M4B file is natively bookmarkable, um, the only problem with M4, it's just another flavor of AAC file, but the only problem I've ever had with M4Bs is that some other players don't recognize them. For instance, if I slap a bunch of M4Bs on a thumb drive and plug it into my car's audio system, it doesn't recognize them. Right. But in any case, um, you can make any track in iTunes bookmarkable by just setting the uh, remember playback position uh, like you just talked about. Right, and that's a great feature because you can listen to something on, let's say, your iPhone, um, sync it to your computer, and then you can listen to it on your computer and pick up in the same spot. Uh, that's really practical when you're listening to audiobooks. So one thing I do when I have an audiobook that's multiple tracks is I create a smart playlist. Um, if my play, if it's the first time I'm listening to something, the play count is zero. So I create a, a playlist where album is and then the name of the album, and then plays is zero. And as you listen to this smart playlist and you get to the end of a track, the play count will increment to one and that track will drop off the playlist. So whenever you pick up the playlist again, you're always at the point where you stopped listening. Uh-huh. Whether it's inside a track or a new track. Right. That's a, that's a very clever way of, of setting it up. You didn't know that. Well, I did know that. It's just that I don't listen to audiobooks as much as you do. <laughs> See, I learn something from you every episode. Well, I don't listen as, to them as much as I used to. Ah, okay. 
So audiobooks. Do you like audiobooks, um, listeners out there? Uh, I find it quite enjoyable to listen. As I said, I listen to a lot of theater, but I also like listening to books. I think a lot of people listen to books when they're working out. Uh, I can't listen to fiction like that. I can listen to nonfiction, though. Um, if I'm walking, if I'm, you know, walking on a treadmill, walking outside. A lot of people listen when they're driving. I find it distracting. Again, fiction is hard because you, if you miss something, you're lost. In nonfiction, it's a little bit easier to follow. You know, I met, it's, this is probably not the point in the show to admit that I don't listen to audiobooks a lot. <laughs> but for a time, I did. My wife used to commute um, back and forth. Uh, about two hours every day, and she got hooked on audiobooks, and that's when I was listening to them. But one of the things I found annoying about them is they just didn't move fast enough. I can actually I can read faster than I can be read too. So that's always something that I find a little annoying. Even if I put it on a machine that speeds it up or 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 it changes the pitch or you know whatever, I still uh, I much prefer to read than to be read to. So interesting point. Um, the history of audiobooks is also the history of audiobook narration. And in the early days, audiobooks were read very slowly, as if the people listening were stupid. And it's changed a lot. And most narrators speak at a somewhat normal pace these days. Not all of them, but most of them do. Um, you can speed up the playback of an audiobook in any music app, like the iOS music app, or um, music players on Android, or Audible's own app. The algorithm for speeding up the, the playback has gotten better. Um, a few years ago, it sounded really choppy. It sounded like you would hear a half a second and then a half a second would be cut off, kind of. It sounded, yeah, it was like, it was like audi audible jaggies. It sounded weird, but it sounds a lot better now. And while I don't do this for theater, I do for books. I generally put them at 1.25, unless the narrator is speaking relatively quickly. None of the players I've heard have a speed-up algorithm as good as Overcast, the podcast app, which, if I'm not mistaken, 40% of our listeners are using Overcast. So you're all familiar with the way it works. It cuts out silences, and it has this smart speed thing that instead of setting a fixed speed, like 1.5, you notice it varies as the speech is going on. You know, a great feature of Overcast is that if you make a patronage payment, you can get some space to which you can upload your own files and you could conceivably upload your own audiobooks and and listen to them on Overcast and take advantage of some of the uh, some of the playback effects that are so great on Overcast. Yeah, you can upload your own files and play them back in Overcast and they show up I think in a list of uploads instead of like a podcast name and just to be able to use his smart speed feature alone, it's worth it. Of course, you can't do this with audiobooks that you bought from Audible or iTunes because they have DRM. So you can only do it with audiobooks that you've ripped or public domain audiobooks, or maybe you've got a library that lends books on CDs and you can rip them from there. Here's an idea. Record your own audiobook, then upload it to Overcast, and then listen to it. Listen to yourself read a book. That's a good way to do it. You're welcome. Before we hang it up, we're going to give you our next tracks. That is what we'll be listening to next today. Kirk? So my next track this week is obviously some Shakespeare. We're talking about audiobooks. So I've just got to throw out some Shakespeare. I've got a link in the show notes to a review I wrote about the complete Archangel Shakespeare. This is a set of Shakespeare recordings of all 38 Shakespeare plays that was made um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, featuring 
about 400 different actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, which is now my local. I live about three miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, where the Royal Shakespeare Company performs. And there are a lot of Shakespeare plays I like, but my favorite has always been King Lear. And I'll also include a link to the iTunes store where you can download the King Lear for 10 bucks. It has Trevor Peacock playing King Lear, and it has David Tennant playing Edgar. You've heard of David Tennant. He was um, at the Royal Shakespeare Company for a, a while in the 1990s and 2000s. I saw him play Richard II a couple of years ago. This set has a whole bunch of well-known actors, extraordinarily well-performed. These are full cast recordings where you get stereo effects and you have music and you have sound effects and all. It's an attempt to make the plays sound the way they would if you were in a theater on stage. Um, there are 38 plays. The full box set is only available used and it's really expensive now. I have it, I think it was $400 when I bought it and it's probably selling for around 1000 now. But you can buy all these downloads at 10 bucks uh, each on the iTunes store. You can get them maybe from Audible as well um, if you have an Audible subscription. So my next track is King Lear, um, the Archangel Shakespeare, and I'll be listening to that track for a while. I don't know what I was thinking, not picking an audiobook. Seemed like a no-brainer. Uh, I will be listening to Fleetwood Mac Live in Boston. This is a three-volume set of music recorded at the Boston Tea Party, which was a club at the time, in February 1970. So, yes, I am talking about the original Fleetwood Mac featuring Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, Danny Kerwin, as well as Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. This is when they were doing their brand of British blues rock post-John Mayall. Um, these recordings were supposed to be released as a single LP later in 1970, but Peter Green left the band and kind of threw Fleetwood Mac into disarray for a few years. But this is a really great live album. Uh, I'm a big fan of live albums in general because I think it's the true test of musicianship for a lot of artists. Uh, if you're a fan of British blues, like Savoy Brown, Humble Pie, Spooky Tooth, John Mayall, Eric Clapton, Cream, things like that, uh, you may want to check this out. It is Fleetwood Mac, live in Boston. Sometimes it's called Boston Live. Sometimes it's called Jumping at Shadows. And it's my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>